This season of Tub Talk is brought to you by Barracuda MSP. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. There are so many ransomware attacks that governments are now classifying them as terrorism. And it's not just big companies that are being targeted. Small and medium-sized businesses are becoming victims too. What are you as an MSP doing to help your clients from becoming the next victim? Barracuda MSP is here to help you ensure you and your clients are prepared and protected against the inevitable ransomware attacks. Let Barracuda MSP help you strengthen your ransomware protection plan. As a special offer for TubTalk listeners, visit barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. That's barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. Thanks to Barracuda MSP for helping bring you TubTalk. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Richard Tubb here back again with an interview that I have really, really been looking forward to for some time. Grace Marshall is an award-winning author of four books, including the best-selling How to Be Really Productive, which I personally rate as one of, if not the best productivity book that I have ever read. I personally know Grace as as the productivity ninja, and she's also the lady who helped me overcome procrastination and start getting things done. More on that later. Grace's latest book is Struggle, The Surprising Truth, Beauty, and Opportunity Hidden in Life's Shittier Moments. And given that 2020 has been a pretty challenging year for most of us, I wanted to bring Grace onto the show to talk about this book. Grace, welcome to Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. I was trying to think back. I mentioned there in your introduction that you were the lady who really helped me overcome procrastination and start getting things done. How long have we known each other for now? Oh, gosh. Was that before I started doing the Productivity Ninja work? It may have been. It may have been, yeah. And that was 2012. So, yeah, quite a while now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) but you've made, you know, upfront, I'll say you've made a profound impact on my life, not just in productivity terms, but in the wisdom that you share in your uh, email newsletter, your books, everything. I would just say I'm a better person for knowing you. So thank you upfront. And I've been so excited about getting you onto uh, this podcast. So uh, where are you joining us from today? So I'm in Stafford in the West Midlands. Um, yep. I'm currently in my conservatory and there is a lot of building work happening outside, which I'm trying to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about the building work, you moved home uh, not so long ago as well. Uh, and then we had a little thing called the COVID-19 pandemic, which has sort of turned everything upside down. Now, I first got to know your work through the book, 21 Ways to Manage the Stuff That Sucks Up Your Time. Tell us a little bit more, though, about your productivity journey and what productivity means for you. Mm, Good question. So I'm naturally disorganized, so I would not have picked time management or productivity as my thing. Um, But I was in a situation where I was growing my own business alongside my kids. So my business was like my middle child. And, um, And a lot of the people I was working with were in a similar position where they had maybe started their business to create some freedom and some flexibility around the way that they work. And yet they find that the business takes over. And um, so too much to do, not enough time, how do I fit it all in was the number one challenge that all my clients had. And they were asking me, how do you do it, Grace? And um, after a while, I thought, you know what, just like answer the question. (laughs) So even if I didn't feel like I was a particularly natural expert in time management or organization, um, I just started to answer the question. And I realized that um, for me, it's not so much about how organized you are. Yes, there are some things that you can put in place to help you feel more organized, but it doesn't ha- you don't have to be naturally organized. Um, and in fact, it's more, it's more personal than that. So for me, productivity is very personal. It's about working out what works for you, putting things in place that help you to bring out your best strengths rather than changing your, your personality to try and fit a particular mold. Yeah. And I want to talk about struggle. We've alluded to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but which by the time this actually gets released, this podcast, I hope that many people in the UK are traveling and getting to see uh, one another again with the vaccination program. Fingers crossed on that one. Um, so let's talk about struggle shortly. But before we do, I just want to give you a shout out, a big, a big congratulations. So the website Anything But Idle recently did a poll, didn't they, for the top 10 female productivity organization and technology experts. It was great to see your name on the list. 
and I noticed that you won that as well. You are now the number one list uh, person on that list. That is brilliant news. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, completely blown away. Um, so there were some you know, household names on there and um, people I, I admire um, and you know, have a lot of respect for. Um, so I was yeah, really honoured to be nominated and then completely blown away um, by all of you who, who voted for me. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you to those who voted. I think the, uh, the credit belongs there as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> really well deserved. As I said, you know, you've made a huge impact on me and I know I'm not the only person. Before we, we jump into struggle and talking about about the latest book and that I mentioned you helped me overcome procrastination I was and still am if I don't uh, work hard at it the world's biggest uh, procrastinator I took part in your baby steps program so that's going back quite some time now mm-hmm. it actually helped me to finish off my third book which is the the IT business owner survival guide so thank you and for anybody listening to this who has read that book thank you but you also need to give grace some thanks because okay. that book would not have got finished if it wasn't for grace you really helped me kick procrastination into touch to this day I would say you know I'm a much more productive person I just want to ask about procrastination as a whole though why do you think so many of us struggle to get stuff done do you know what I think procrastination is a very human thing like we beat ourselves up about it but it's just it's a very natural human instinct to want to avoid things that are big boring and scary um, it's, it's wired into our biological makeup um, and yet um I think you know, when we realize that, we can sometimes take a lot of that pressure off of ourselves. So rather than beat ourselves up to go, oh, gosh, I'm procrastinating again. Um, I'm rubbish at this. You know, how stupid of me and things like that. When we realize, oh, this is really natural. <laughs> this is really normal. We can take that pressure bubble off. But also we can um, then start to go, OK, let's look at the thing that I'm procrastinating. Because when we're procrastinating, what we're, we're doing is we're trying not to look at it. And um, and yet we know that it still takes up a whole load of space. It takes up head space, it takes up emotional space, um, and, and it weighs us down. So instead of kind of having it in the background where there's a shadow looming over us, if we bring it to the foreground and actually look at it, we can then go, what is it about this thing that we can get curious about it rather than fearful around it? And then we realize, oh, okay, it's way too big. I've got right book on my to-do list. That's never going to happen. You know, how do I break that down, break it into baby steps? What's the very next step I can take? Or like, oh, gosh, it's scary. Yeah, do you know what? It's scary because I've not done this before. And so nerves are totally the right, you know, the, the, a normal reaction to have to this thing. And that's okay. Um, and one of the things I, I write in this book, in Struggle, actually, is that nerves can be a sign that we care. So sometimes when we feel like we're procrastinating or we're struggling with something and we think, oh, does that mean that I'm in the wrong place? Does that mean I'm not, you know, that I shouldn't be doing this at all? Actually, no, the opposite is true. Maybe it means you're absolutely in the right place because you're doing something new. You're stretching yourself. You're in that growth zone rather than the comfort zone. Um, And this is the work that really matters. Yeah, so much to unpack there, but it leads us nicely on uh, to the conversation about your latest book, Struggle. Um, where did, first of all, where did the idea for the book come from? Because am I right in thinking that you had the idea for this before the pandemic hit us? Yes, absolutely. So um, it's really interesting because I think it was back in 2018 that the idea started forming and it was kind of brewing over the years. And then 2020 clearly was the year that I needed to write it because I was like, <laughs> okay, this is all happening around us now. Um but it started with um, it started with the thought of like actually, what if productivity wasn't just about the fast and the furious? That often we think of productivity as efficiency. It's about speed. It's about getting things done. And yes, it is. But also, if it's only about those things, we tend to see struggle as an obstacle. So we see it as something's gone horribly wrong. Or maybe something's wrong with us, like we're not enough. Maybe I'm not being focused enough, not being good enough, not driven enough. Um, and I was hearing a lot of this from um, you know, from readers like you and from you know, people I work with in workshops. And you know, most, of, most of the things that people struggle with when they come to me, I can help them with. It's like, okay, if you're struggling with your inbox, I can help with that. If you're struggling with too many meetings, if you're struggling with your work-life balance, yeah, let's work with that. And, and yeah, to an extent, I can give you some things that can help to fix that. But there was still um, an area of struggle that I thought, this isn't for me to fix. And actually, fixing is the wrong, wrong solution for it. 
Um, and so I felt like struggle was this taboo that we all have and we don't talk about. Um, or if we talk about it, we have very limited conversations about it. And I just felt like that wasn't the full story. It wasn't the full picture of struggle or of productivity. So that's when I started kind of diving into the, the idea of it and the concept of it. And, and that's where the, the book idea came from. It is a wonderful book. I'm not just saying that because I'm your friend, but it is a beautifully written book. And full disclosure, you were kind enough to send me a copy for um, for, for reading before it was uh, published. Um, so thank you for involving me in the writing process as well, because it was great to see how another author actually pens things there. Um, I would go as far as to say this isn't the book about productivity. Mm. I have been struggling to pigeonhole this book. Um, you know, we talked about your previous books, all about productivity, made a massive uh, impact on me. This book, uh, it is about productivity, but it's also about the emotions that go into things. It's a little bit of a self-help book, dare I say mm. that, personal development as well. How would you categorize this book? <laughs> this is a, an ongoing conversation I had with my publisher. Um, yeah, it's absolutely, it's... Um, it's I guess that if I was to categorize it, I would put it somewhere in between self-help and business mm. um, because there are business lessons to learn from it. But you're right. It's a very personal book. It's a very soul-searching book, um, but it's also a very practical book as well. So I was trying to ride that line between giving something, giving people something useful that they could use in the middle of the struggle. So not just like um, I talk about the you know, light in the middle of the tunnel, not light at the end of the tunnel, because I don't want it just to be like, hey, everything's going to be fine. There'll be a silver lining at the end, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's more like, here's something that you can use to help you to feel better, but also to help you to see things differently when you're in the middle of struggle. And that, that struggle can be a whole range of things. It can be when we're struggling um, with, with work. You know, when work feels hard, when work feels slow, or when work feels difficult, be struggling in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a crisis, when things go wrong and things break. Um, it can also be struggling in terms of relationships, whether that's working relationships, when you have complaints, when you have um, conflict, um, or you know, even in personal growth as well. So, you know, I think it's it does span lots of different areas. Um, and yeah, it's a book that refuses to be pigeonholed. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. It really is an interesting book because, you know, when you first asked me to get involved in the, the process, I thought, oh, this is a productivity book. And it clearly is, but it also isn't. <laughs> so I think in danger of confusing anybody listening to this thinking, well, what type of book is it? What I would say when people have asked me about this book is, uh, we've got lots of high achievers who listen to uh, this podcast. We've got lots of IT business owners, people who are focused on productivity. And most of us see struggle as an obstacle. Mm. When we hit that, it's like, oh, I should be able to overcome this and move for as quickly as possible. The challenge that we have, I think, I certainly have, and speaking for some of the audience here is, when we hit that, we start to beat ourselves up. Oh, this is getting in the way of me getting things done faster and better and you know more efficiently. The big question in the head is like, how do we over, how do we embrace that struggle? Because struggle is a part of life, you know. Yeah. And if COVID nineteen has taught us anything, uh, it's that things can change, and we're going to struggle with some of those decisions. So, you know, thank you for this book. I have returned to it a number of times, and actually, I want to ask you the question: In times of struggle, we often find I certainly find myself flapping a little bit and just trying to grind the results out. Mm. When you're in times of struggle, how do you remind yourself that actually you've got um, techniques, you've got tools, you've got uh, things that can inspire you to move through it? I guess the question I'm asking, Grace, is how do I remind myself to return to your book when I'm in the struggle and not just after I've got past the yeah. struggle? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first step is... Um, so there's something I call the three shits in the book. Yeah. And um, the first step is, oh, shit. It's just recognizing. It's recognizing, oh, shit, I'm in struggle. Or, shit, this is hard. Or, shit, this hurts. Um, and I think too often we don't. Too often we just go straight from, oh, shit, to like, I've got to fix this. And we reach for that resolution. And it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like how lots of people went out and bought toilet paper. Yes. When the you know, when the pandemic hit. It so they feel as though they're taking action. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it wasn't even a, um, you know, a stomach bug virus. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't even like you know, loosely related. It was more just like, this is something I can control that I'm going to grab for it. 
And, and that's what we tend to do. And that comes from our, um, you know, our biological makeup. It comes from our lizard brain. So the primitive part of our brain that is responsible for keeping us alive, um, but also responsible for a lot of, a lot of our procrastination. <laughs> and you know, it does that by recognizing uh, threat and recognizing, it tends to recognize all change as threat and all new things as threat. But it responds with basically a fight or flight fear response. And when it comes to struggle, that fight response could be, I just need to hustle on harder mm. and, and, and kind of break my way through. Flight could look like procrastination. Like, oh, maybe this is not the right thing for me to do right now. Um, do you know what? I've got so much else I need to do on the to-do list. I'm going to tick off some of those things first and I'm going to put that away. Um, and actually, neither of those is, is particularly helpful. So what we can do is, first of all, recognize, ah, okay, I'm in struggle. And give yourself that chance to go, this is how I feel without feeling like I need to fix it. Um, and then the second step is to get curious, because curiosity is a brilliant antidote to fear. Um, so when we start getting curious, we start asking questions. So rather than fear going, this is danger, or this is a battle, or this is an enemy, or this is a trap, you know, curiosity starts going, but what is it really? So you know, step two is like, what is this shit? Like, um, and what what do I think it is? But what else could it be? So, yeah, like, for example, what looks like, um, you yeah, what looks like an obstacle could also be an opportunity. What looks like um, somebody making a complaint could also be someone who's confused. Uh, what looks like dismissive could also be distracted. There's so many ways that when we're in that fear mode, that fight or flight mode, our brain is thinking really quickly and it's not always accurate. And um, so we tend to kind of you know, we home in on pattern matching. We look for who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. We go for the certainties of like black and white thinking. Um, whereas when we start to activate curiosity, we activate the other part of our brain that starts to look wider. So we kind of it's not even a middle ground, it's a wider ground. And then we start to go, well, what else could this be? And what else could it mean? And that's when we can get much more creative and much more innovative. It, it just activates the better part of our brain. Yeah. And I think for anybody listening to this who is um, big into productivity, as I know many other listeners of Tub Talk are, you will be getting the impression now when we're talking about this book, we were trying to pigeonhole it without much success. <laughs> There's elements of mental health awareness in here as well, mm -hmm. I would suggest. And um, so you, you get the impression now that this book is about something beyond productivity, which is our emotions and how we, um, you know, how we actually deal with the things that come in, because it isn't all just about systems. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about what do we feel about this as well? So uh, yeah. On the subject of shit, <laughs> and this might be a shock for any listeners to this podcast who don't ever hear what anybody would consider curse words, and we're throwing them around left, right, and centre here, but it's part of your book title, so I've got to mention it. Yeah. But the, the first part of your book is called When the Shit Hits the Fan. Mm. And for many of us who work in IT, um, that was last March when the great working from home rush started, as I like to call it. Everybody in there uncle got in touch with IT businesses, MSPs, and said, I need to work from home and I need to work from home today. Mm. And we had to, all of us in the IT industry had to drop what we were doing. You know, it literally hit the fan and we just dealt with it. What can we learn from those moments so that we can handle them better next time? That's really interesting. I'm going to turn that question around on you, Richard, because yeah. I want to know what... When you ask that question, what do you feel like you didn't get handled well? What were some of the things where, what was your toilet paper moment? Yeah, I think it was underestimating the stress that is on other people. We often, mm -hmm. I think, live in sort of, um, you know, we're, we're all our own uh, favourite topic. We live in our <laughs> own world. Um, and it was underestimating how much stress is, uh, is affecting other people. For, for everybody that I was speaking to, it was hitting the fan in their business. And of course, sometimes we don't see the best of people when mm. stress hits. So if I was to look back to the last 12 months, um, if anything, I would say when there is anger or uh, resentment or impatience, to be a little bit more curious about why that might be as opposed to taking the hump and getting irritated with it. Does that make sense, Grace? Absolutely, yeah. So it's that, what I just said there before about turning, kind of activating curiosity in the face of fear. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. It's recognizing, oh, hang on, this isn't attack. This is actually just you're really stressed um, or you're you're worried. So it's almost like noticing anxiety rather than noticing um, you're feeling like you're attacking me. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I write about this in the book. I used a personal example of um, me and my husband. Um, that, you know, it was actually in, in a counseling session that we had where um, the counselor said, that sounds a lot like panic. And um, and and that those words just blew my mind because we were basically talking about a certain pattern of conversation and, and behavior that would happen between us, where um, you know, I felt like he was being really unreasonable, he was getting really angry, he was um, you know, just you know, and, and my response to that was to raise my voice to get more emotional. Um, and you know, what we didn't realize was actually his response wasn't a calculated attack. It was a panic attack. It was a high functioning panic attack. And so for me, when I think, oh, this person's really angry and he's having a go at me, I'm going to get defensive and I'm going to respond in a way, in a particular way, um, you know, if I think that that person's attacking me. But if I get, oh, that person's having a panic attack, the last thing I'm going to do is shout louder because that's just not going to help. And so it changes everything when we our perception of what's going on changes how we feel about it, changes how we experience it, it changes what we do in response. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that noticing stress in ourselves and also noticing stress in each other can then help us to maybe have a different experience. So rather than like, you know, everybody wants something from me. I can't give it to them. Um, nobody's ever happy with anything. You know, it's like, ah, I'm recognizing people are stressed here. What can I do about that? Maybe I can add to the calm rather than adding to the stress. Maybe I can just give somebody a moment to rant and not feel like I have to fix whatever they're ranting about um, and just go, okay, yeah, that sounds really stressful. But here's what I can do about that. Or, you know, actually, there's nothing I can do about that, but here's what I can do instead. So another part of the book, I talk about the guy who gets all the complaints. Mm. Um, and this actually came from um, a situation I found myself in where I was at Waterloo Station and um, there had been a fire on the line somewhere and all the trains were cancelled. It was really hot. If you'd managed to run through the barriers and sneak onto the train, you were just stuck in like a sardine tin um, and full, you know, full of lots of other people and the train was going nowhere. I was on the platform and I, I was just, you know, I just resigned myself to go, well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to grab a drink and, and then figure out what happens next. And I was people watching, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and I noticed that there were very few um, guards on the platform. There were very few um, workers. They'd all kind of hold themselves up in the, in the office because they were like, well, there's nothing we can do about this. <laughs> and in fact, one particular train company who shall remain nameless, um, completely left Twitter. Like they, they just, it looked like they just turned off their Twitter feed and they didn't reply to anything. There were all these people kind of tweeting, going, what's going on? And they were just like, right, nothing we can do about this, hands off. And there was this one train guard in the middle of the platform who wasn't able to fix anything, but he was just looking people in the eyes. He was nodding. He was showing empathy. He was going, yeah, I get it. And hey, there's nothing we can do about it or, yeah, we really don't know much more than you do. But what I noticed was that he was showing up and he was making a human connection. And even though he wasn't able to fix the problem, he was making it better. He was making it better for them, those people. He was also making it better for his company because he was maintaining that relationship. And I think what uh, to come back to what you were saying, when we're able to notice that stress and recognize it for what it is, yeah, with that sense of curiosity rather than a sense of defensiveness, then we can show up at our best, even in shitty situations. Yeah. My friends, Nigel Moore and Eric Rieger, um, said something that struck a chord to me recently. They said, when you get furious, get curious. And I like that phrase and I've been using that a lot recently. So it's not just when I get furious, but if I'm ever taken aback by things, it's like, hmm, what's all this about then? And where's the mm. other person coming from with that? So, oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, so you've referred in uh, earlier on and you've referred in the book uh, a lot to the responses of our fast brain. Um, it's something that I've become very interested in. So for, for people not familiar with that, can you explain the idea of the fast brain versus the slow brain and what it means for us as business owners? Mm. So this comes from um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about system one and system two. 
The system one is what I call the fast brain. It is, it's quick. It, it looks for patterns. It jumps to conclusions. Um, and you know, for a lot of what we do, it's what gives us our efficiency in productivity. Um, so if you, there's something you do well and you've got a routine set up and you're like, okay, I know exactly what I need to do. I can jump straight to it. That's our fast brain working. System two is our slower brain. It's more considered. It kind of takes more data into account. It takes more time to figure things out. And, um, and so it uses a lot more resources. It's a lot more resource heavy, but it tends to be more accurate. And so when it comes to productivity and business building, when we do the things we know well, we can use our fast brain quite well. But when we're dealing with something new, or when things have changed and actually we need to take our time and look deeper, that's when we need to use our slow brain. And if we're used to being in fast brain all the time, if we're used to that sense of getting things done, that sense of momentum and efficiency, slow brain is gonna feel like I'm getting stuck. I'm not being productive. Um, you know, this is taking too long um, or, or it's just taking a lot out of me because it does, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it takes a lot more mental and emotional capacity to use your slow brain. Um, but slow brain is also where we make new connections. It's where we discover, it's where we learn. It's probably where we're going to innovate and do something new. So if you're um, extending into a new market, for example, or you're going into a new phase um, of your business and you're, you're wanting to do something new rather than do the same things but better, um, then you, things are going to feel slow. Things are going to feel hard. And rather than seeing that as I'm not being productive, what we can do is recognize, ah, that's because I'm needing to use my slow brain here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and by doing that, by slowing down, I can pay more attention and I can learn more. So rather than seeing it as something's gone wrong, it's like, what can I learn here? What's the opportunity here? Yeah, very interesting. Now, I've mentioned it before. I consider myself a high achiever. Um, I would say the majority of people who listen to this podcast would consider themselves high achievers. We've probably read all the productivity books under the sun. <laughs> In fact, I had David Allen, you know, the godfather of productivity, the author of GTD, which has been a huge influence on all of us. I had him on um, the 50th episode of this podcast. My question is broader, though. About high achievers, do you think that high achievers put too much pressure on themselves? I think that sometimes we can use productivity to beat ourselves up. Yeah. And that's, to me, is probably the least productive thing we can do. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> um, I think we also, as high achievers, we can, and, and, and I consider myself as part of this as well, I think we can sometimes put a lot of our identity in achieving. Mm. And we can sometimes think, who am I if I'm not doing this or if I'm not achieving? Um, and you know, and the the danger of that is that we, I guess we hold on to what we know and we hold on to what we do well. And we don't allow ourselves grounds to not be the expert. <laughs> we don't allow ourselves that space to learn something new, to be the the um the apprentice rather than the expert to be kind of you exploring new grounds. I mean, it's a really interesting thing in leadership, particularly that sometimes we can pride ourselves in having all the answers and then we're fearful for not having answers. But if we think about the kind of world that we're leading in now where uncertainty is the norm, then actually what we need out of our leaders much more than having the answers is being willing to ask the questions yes, and being willing to say, I don't know, let's find out. Um, so definitely there's there's um, there's a growth opportunity there for us high achievers of recognizing where um, you know, that, that there is space for for learning and space for playing as well. And sometimes your best kind of creativity, your best innovation comes from play and also space for rest so oh, yes. that what we do is sustainable. Yeah, let's talk about rest, actually. That's great. I know your husband, Grant, has a background in IT. You understand the challenges that IT professionals go through. This past year, as I've alluded to, has been particularly challenging for IT solution providers. Mm -hmm. I hear lots of managed service providers, IT businesses, saying it's been nonstop and they just can't seem to find the time for rest. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give those people on rest and rhythm is something that you mentioned quite a lot in the book as well? Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, and, and rhythm is something I mentioned in, in the other book as well. So it's, it's mm. something that I've been very much 
um, you know, invested in and curious about for a long time. For me, I always say work-life rhythm rather than work-life balance because balance feels like an accounting act. Yes. And you know, if you're if something's out of balance, you're like, oh gosh, I've got to work out the other one. So it always feels like you're you're playing catch up. Whereas rhythm is more like a dance. So yes, there are fast times, there are slow times. There's there's a mixture, there's a variety in that. So one of the things I'll say is that work never ends. So it's up to us to put in place those finish lines. And particularly working in IT, the technology enables us to be 24-7. But as human beings, we can't. Um, and so recognizing that actually we show up at our best and we do our best work when we have a good rhythm. So when we're able to take a rest, when we're able to come back fresh, that's actually when we do better work. Yeah. rather than like, oh, God, I've got so much work to do. I just need to carry on and do it. And I noticed this in, um, yeah, I do notice this in, in my husband's world of work, that um, because you can physically work anywhere and work anytime, there are some people, particularly in lockdown, particularly when, you know, there's not much you can do like outside socially. So there are some people who've taken to working longer hours, maybe because they enjoy the work, maybe because there is a lot of work out there. So there's that there's high demand, um, but the more hours you work doesn't actually make the work go away. It just expands to fill the time available. Absolutely. So, um, so it's, it's recognizing that actually, A, it's not sustainable. B, it doesn't help you to do your best work. Um, because what we tend to do is we get ground down. And so we can't see, you know, we can't see that wider field. So we start going into lizard brain mode. We start looking for those patterns. We start going, well, that's this and that's that. And you can't actually see beyond that. So in order to see better and to do better thinking, we need to be able to take a time away and to rest and then to come back. And um, I love that you mentioned earlier that a lot of this is about kind of our emotions, because I think this plays a lot into productivity that we don't really talk about much. Um, so if you think about capacity, if you think about what do I say yes to, what do I say no to? A lot of us think of our physical capacity. So can I physically fit that into the diary mm. <laughs> but actually the other questions are what's our mental capacity like have I got the the brain power to do this piece of work justice but also what's my emotional capacity as well um because if I can't show up um with you know with the emotional capacity that I need to manage a relationship well I could actually do this you know do do damage here rather than to do good. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, there's a great quote by Manoush Shafiq, who's the director of London School of Economics. And she says that in the past, our jobs were about the muscle, you know, they're about muscles. In the present, our jobs are about the mind. And in the future, they'll be about the heart. Um, you know, and you know, so in an age where work is about hearts and minds, we need to start really paying attention to our emotional and our mental capacity as well as our physical capacity. This is so powerful. And it really struck a chord with me when I was reading it um, in the book. And thank you for sort of uh, delving a little bit deeper into that. Something you said there really struck a chord with me. And that is we sometimes we have the physical capacity so we can just keep going. But the mental capacity, you know, bringing the best version of ourselves and being able to do that, that's something that I have uh, personally found during lockdown. I've been giving a lot of myself to others, been doing a lot of presenting, been a lot of speaking, been a lot of writing, pouring myself into things. And then I've actually found that when it comes to resting, whilst I'm physically, you know, got energy uh, left there, mentally, there is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Something you said in, in the book, you know, I found a little bit scary, but it did strike a chord to me. You talked about people finding rest scary. Mm -hmm. So I'm fascinated by your research into why rest can be scary because that really strikes a chord with me at the moment. Yeah, there's something about, um, I think it all, all comes down to control. So when we're working, we feel like we have an element of control. Even when things feel out of control, it's like, well, this is what I can do. And I can throw more hours at it. I can throw more effort at it. And, and I can I can at least work on this thing and I can make this happen. Um, rest is the opposite of that. Mm. Rest is about trust. Um, because rest is about walking away, leaving it alone, and trusting that you can come back. And so this is why it's terrifying to rest, because when we rest, we, we let go of control. And that's when we start thinking things like, but what if it all falls apart? You know, and I come back and it's, it's a mess. 
and I have to pick up all the pieces again and rebuild it all again. Business owners in particular, we feel this. Like you, know, the, the amount of times we go, I'm just going to keep an eye on the emails when I'm on holiday because I don't want things to fall apart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Um, but then what's behind that is, is even weirder because I notice that I also start thinking, but what if it doesn't fall apart? And that's even more terrifying because maybe that means that I'm not needed at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so these like really weird kind of ego things um, are what kind of plays in the back of our heads. Um, and and when, you, when we speak out loud, we take the, you know, we pop the pressure bubble on it because you go, ah, oh, it's just ego. <laughs> um, but when we don't speak it out loud, it haunts us. And you know, and we're not really conscious about it. Um, there's another really great quote from Carl Jung who says that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Yeah. <laughs> so when we notice these things, we go, ah, okay, yes, that's what's going on there. Um, and that's why it's terrifying to rest. And that's okay, I can I can face that fear. Um, and actually what happens when you step away and you let go is that you kind of find yourself again. So sometimes you might, it might be like, well, what if I decide, what if I decide I'm just going to walk away completely? I'm never going to come back to this. Um, and that might be the case. You might decide, actually, it's time to move on to something else. Um, and you know, therein lies the adventure. But um, it's, you know, it's all those kind of unknowns. It's going into the unknown that feels scary about resting. But also in that unknown is a whole lot of potential. You know, who knows what you might find, what you might rediscover, or what new thing you might discover um, when you when you walk away and you allow yourself to rest. And who knows what you might find when you come back as well. You might find that your team is so brilliant that actually you've trusted them and they've kept the ship going. And um, and that means you know, maybe that gives you more space to think about your role within the business and you don't have to be the one holding everything together. Yeah, it's fascinating. If I rewind sort of 15 years ago when I was running the IT business, um, I remember taking one of my first uh, long-term trips to the US. So I was there for a, a couple of weeks at a, a big conference. And it was the first time I'd left the office, you know, into a different time zone. I was like, well, I'm, I'm contactable, but only really get in touch with me if you need to. And mm -hmm. they didn't. And I fretted, Grace. I was like, well, why yeah. aren't they getting in touch? And so I became comfortable. And of course, when I came back after two weeks... The building hadn't burnt down, the office hadn't burnt down, all the clients were still there and happy, everything had just worked. And it actually reframed my uh, position in who I was within the business. Mm. I'm not there to hold it all together. I'm, I'm there, you know, to, um, to facilitate every, uh, the business growing. So, you know, this book, Struggle, I found um, challenged me in certain places as well. And I think anybody listening to this is perhaps an IT business owner thinking the business could not cope without me. <laughs> this is a bit of a blow to our ego, isn't it? Or a bit it of a is. challenge for us to think, hmm, maybe it can. But I, I want to talk about something specific um, now that MSP owners especially um, bring up with me, and that's around boundaries. So mm -hmm. I said earlier, IT business owners that I speak to said they just can't find the time for rest. But a frequent complaint of IT business owners is that clients don't respect boundaries. Clients want things fixed. They want it fixed now, whatever the hour is. How could you, would you be able to give any practical advice for MSP owners listening to this on how we could establish stronger boundaries and have people respect them? Yeah. So the thing that, that taught me the most about boundaries was for me having kids <laughs> and recognizing that actually pushing boundaries is what kids do. And they don't push boundaries because they don't want to have boundaries there. They actually push boundaries because they want to know how strong those boundaries are. So actually knowing that there are strong boundaries helps them to feel safe. Um, and I learned this actually from my sister-in-law, who's a foster carer. Um, it was part of their foster, her foster care training um, in that you know, foster care kids will push boundaries loads because they've been used to not having. It's like when you push the walls of a house. If you've been used to the house collapsing, you don't feel safe in the house. So you're going to test those walls and make sure they're safe. And that's exactly what people are doing when they're testing boundaries. They want to know where it is. They may not say it. They may not feel it. They may just go, no, I want everything. But actually, it's the clarity that we want more than anything else. So when it comes to setting boundaries in your business, um, a lot of people go, well, I don't want to piss people off. I don't want to disappoint people. I want to look available and accommodating. So it's all good reasons why yeah, we, yeah, we don't have strong boundaries. But actually, if we know, so from a mindset perspective, 
it's flipping that around and recognizing that actually what we give our clients is a gift of clarity when we put boundaries in place. And the relationship will be better off. They will have less uncertainty and stress in their head when it comes to dealing with you if they know exactly where they stand. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say is, is kind of that mindset and that perspective shift. Then practically speaking, it comes down to um, it comes down to communication. It comes down to saying this is what's okay, this is what's not okay, or this is what I do and what I don't do. So from a language perspective, if um, if you're struggling with saying like I can't, like I can't work weekends, you might be struggling with that because a it might not be true. It's like well I could, <laughs> um, but also it feels like you're speaking about your own capacity. Like I'm not good enough. So using the words I don't is much more assertive. It's much more confident. And it's just about a choice. So I don't work weekends. Um, you know, so you know, if it's saying, um, you know, this is the package that you've got, here's what we do, here's what we don't do. Um, I'm working with somebody in my business at the moment where there's a, a check-in every week. And she's actually set up a separate email address for those check-ins. And she said to me, like, you know, here's so your reminder to check-in will come up on Monday morning, and I will check it on Wednesday afternoon. So you've got until Monday to Wednesday to send it. Um, I don't look at that email address in between. I only look at it on that day. Um, you know, and that's when I'll get back to you. So being really clear about here's what you do, here's what I do, and here's the time frame I do it within, that helps to reinforce those boundaries. And then the final thing I'll say is that when people test those boundaries, that's a really good opportunity. So rather than feel like, ah, oh, well, they didn't respect it at all. You know, they've just tried to walk all over me. No, there's no point having boundaries. Maybe actually, this is a really good information. So maybe it's like, what isn't clear enough? What do I need to make clearer? And I've noticed that in myself, the times where clients have pushed boundaries or I feel resentful because I feel like there's a boundary that's been pushed. Um, because naturally, I'm quite accommodating. So most of the time, it's like, yeah, that all sounds fine. It's not until somebody crosses the line that I go, ah, okay. But then to turn that around and go, this is really good information. What is it about this that helps me? You know, I can actually use it to clarify here's where the boundary is, here's where the line is. So I didn't really know where the line was until you crossed it. That gives me an opportunity then to set that line um, for you, but also for other people in the future. Absolute gold, Grace, because <laughs> I know so many um, IT business owners listening to this, they get into the industry of running an IT business because they want to help people. Mm -hmm. So like you, they're very accommodating, you know, want to help people. And sometimes, you know, we can be uh, trampled over a little bit. So what you've said there makes absolute sense about setting boundaries and, and sort of asserting them a little bit. So thank you uh, for that. So Struggle, it's a beautifully written book, as I mentioned earlier. I would say it's almost poetic in its language. I think it is a really, really beautiful book. It is unlike most productivity books that um, you will read. Yeah, I highly encourage any high achievers listening to this to check it out. It's an absolutely amazing book. So thank you, Grace. I'm very respectful of your time. However, I've been waiting so long to get you on the podcast. I can't get, let you go without talking about some of your previous books, specifically how to be really productive. It's a book I find myself returning to uh, again and again. It's one of the few books, I'm very respectful of books. I never draw in them, never make notes or whatever. How to be really productive is one where I've got arrows and I've got notes in the margin and all sorts. And I do that shamelessly because it is a book that I return to to help keep me on track. What would you say is the one tip or technique that you give to people in the book that is very, very effective, yet you're surprised to see people overlooking again and again? Such a good question. Um, and I suspect if I asked people who read that book, they might come up with different things each time. Um, I think one of the things that gets overlooked the most is what I say about recharge. And mm. um, so I talk about how if, if recharge is a luxury, if we see it as re a luxury, then it won't get done because everything else, you know, we're waiting for other things to get done before we do it. Um, but actually seeing recharge as fuel for our productivity means that it needs to go in first. And you know, I remember speaking to um, a leader of business uh, recently, actually, where that was such a penny drop moment for him because he often saw like taking time for himself, self-care, you know, recharging rest. He was like, 
that's just wasted time. I'm not adding value. Um, and he was like, yeah, I know I have to do it because I'm human, but I'm a bit, yeah, I'll do it begrudgingly because I don't feel like I'm adding value and adding value is what's meaningful to me. And when I said about recharging, you know, being fuel for your productivity, he was like, oh, this is how I add more value. And it completely changed that for him. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And again, it, it bleeds into what we were talking about in struggle as well. Mm. The idea of rest um, being something that's productive and not necessarily being like a necessary evil. So <laughs> talking of necessary evils, I've got to ask this. So you regularly run courses on how to achieve inbox zero. And we'll include in the show notes link to all of the courses um, if you want to work with Grace uh, directly as well, which I hugely encourage you to. As I said, I've worked with Grace got so much out of it. Um, I'm an Inbox Zero fan, and yet lots of people uh, I speak to, they're like, what? Inbox? <laughs> what? Inbox? What now? I can't. They think it is impossible. What advice would you give to people over the concept of Inbox Zero? So it's about changing your relationship with email. Um, sometimes we, we kind of find that we have a bit of a um, email is doing me rather than the other way around. That's yeah. the kind of relationship we tend to have with email. But actually, um, so Inbox Zero, I think if I was to give one quick piece of advice, it would actually be to go and get Graham Alcott's book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and read chapter four, because that is, that's the ninja email chapter. And that basically talks you through everything that I would take you through in the Getting Your Inbox to Zero workshop. So read that. And I think for most people, that will be enough to get you there. If you read it and you go, I know it all, but I'm still not doing it then get in touch and we can, you know, maybe arrange a getting your inbox to zero workshop because that's a three hour workshop where we talk about it, but we actually get you there. So we get inboxes to zero um, with my help and, um, and you walk out feeling lighter and clearer. And it's amazing what a difference that feels. So you speak of the emotional impacts, quite a lot of people say that that's just life changing. Um, to feel like email isn't hounding me anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely. Like I said, I speak to people and they're like, what? No, impossible. And in fact, I've had um, um, a, a, a multitude of people take pride in taking selfies with me at, at conferences where they're showing their inbox that's got 57,000 messages. And I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm cringing and I'm like getting <laughs> But it is possible. Lots of us live it and uh, yeah. it is a philosophy, isn't it? So thank you for bringing up uh, Graham Alcott as well. Um, love to get Graham on the podcast. For, for anybody not familiar, Graham's um, one of your colleagues at Think Productive, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he's the he's our chief ninja. He's the founder of Think Productive, um, and Think Productive is the organisation that I do a lot of my training and speaking and corporate work with. And um, yeah, so he's um, he's the author of How to Be a Productive Ninja, and um, and he's currently writing the book about kindness. So yeah, we work um, very closely together. Yeah, and he's an Aston Villa fan, the same as me. So he's he's got yeah. to be a good guy, you know. That. <laughs> Grace, I'm very respectful of your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about um, how to be really productive in your latest book, Struggle, as well, which I just can't speak highly enough of. I think it was a book that needed to be written. The fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has happened as well just makes it even more important for people to read this book because far too many of us as high achievers are beating ourselves up for, you know, for struggling with things when actually it's just part of the journey and we need to, to accept that, embrace it and learn from it as well. So thank you for writing this beautiful book. It is incredible. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fun, hasn't it? We should do it again, not leave it so long until next time, perhaps. <laughs> um, just before we go, for anybody who wants to continue the conversation with you directly, what's the best place um, for people to find you online? So if you head on over to strugglethebook.com, that's where you'll find out about the book. And also you can sign up to the conversation that we're having about struggle um, a couple of weeks after launch. So buy the book and then join the conversation on there. Um, I'm also gracemarshall.com. So if you want to find out more about my work generally, then head on over there. And I'm on all the usual social media places. You're fairly easy to find. Grace Marshall, Productivity Ninja, and you will find a wealth of knowledge. So if you've <laughs> never come across Grace's work before, that's your homework. Go and uh, Google Grace Marshall, Productivity Ninja. Trust me, you are going to have a lot of good stuff to read there. So Grace, um, really appreciate your friendship. Thank you for catching up with us on the show today. It's been a blast and um, good luck with the book struggle. Thank you very much, Richard.
Uh, thanks everybody for joining us and we've mentioned a lot of books there we've mentioned a lot of people we've mentioned a lot of resources we'll include all the details in the show notes for this episode over on tublog.co.uk thanks for joining me i'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. This season of Tub Talk is brought to you by Barracuda MSP. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. There are so many ransomware attacks, governments are now classifying them as terrorism. You've seen the news, oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. It's not just big companies that are being targeted. Small and medium-sized businesses are becoming victims too. So what are you as an MSP doing to help your clients from becoming the next statistic? Barracuda MSP is here to help ensure you and your clients are prepared and protected against the inevitable ransomware attack. One, attacks start with an innocent-looking email that tricks users into revealing usernames and passwords. Barracuda MSP can train your clients on your behalf to recognize an attack and enable you to deploy anti-phishing technology. Two, secure clients' web applications. File-sharing services, web forms, and e-commerce sites often have weak points hackers are looking for. If hackers get into these applications, they go after business data. Protect access to these applications so hackers can't get onto your your client's network. Three, backup is a must. Today's solutions make it simple and fast to protect archives and backup or restore an up-to-date copy of an entire server or an individual file. Let Barracuda MSP help you strengthen your ransomware protection plans. As a special offer for TubTalk listeners, visit barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. That's barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's gogo.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.